wonder if God got a plan for everyone I wonder if I could take a second run Cause I carry on getting sad and getting stuck What I wouldn't give for a life that doesn't suck I'm a moving target Another episode of the S3 podcast Episode 71 in today's episode, we will be discussing the Chicago Tylenol murders. Before we get right into it, do you follow us on Instagram at s3podcast underscore. We are also on Facebook at the s3podcast official. So without any more, any further delays, let's get right into it. So let's have a brief overview. So the Chicago Tylenol murders were a series of poisoning deaths resulting from drug tampering in the Chicago metropolitan area in 1982. The victims had all taken Tylenol-branded acetaminophen capsules that had been laced with potassium cyanide. A total of seven people died in the original poisonings, with several more deaths in subsequent copycat crimes. The location is obviously Chicago metropolitan area, date September to October 1982, target retail consumers, attack type poisoning, mass murder, seven deaths, perpetrator unknown, motive unknown. So let's head into the incidents. On September 29, 1982, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman of Elk Grove, Village, Illinois, died after taking a capsule of extra-strength Tylenol. Adam Janus, 27, of Arlington Heights, Illinois, died in the hospital later that day after ingesting Tylenol. His brother, Stanley, 25, and sister-in-law, Teresa, 19, of Lyle, Illinois, later also died after taking Tylenol from the same bottle. Within the next few days, Mary McFarland, 31, of Elmhurst, Illinois, Paula Prince, 35, of Chicago, and Mary Rainier, 27, of Winfield, all died in similar incidents. Once it was realised that all these people had recently taken Tylenol, Tests were quickly carried out, soon revealed cyanide present in the capsules. Warnings were then issued via the media and patrols using loudspeakers warning residents throughout the Chicago metropolitan area to discontinue use of Tylenol products. Police, knowing that various sources of Tylenol were tampered with, ruled out manufacturers as the tampered with bottles came from different pharmaceutical companies and the seven deaths had all occurred in the Chicago area. So, sabotage during production was ruled out. Instead, police concluded that they were likely looking for a culprit who had acquired bottles of Tylenol from various retail outlets. Furthermore, they concluded the source was most likely supermarkets and drugstores over a period of several weeks. 
with the culprit likely adding the cyanide to the capitals, then methodically returning to the store to place the bottles back on the shelves. In addition to the five bottles that led to the victim's death, a few other contaminated bottles were later discovered in the Chicago area. Excuse me. Now, something, something is telling me that whoever did this surely knows their stuff because for them to put a cyanide in, they clearly knew you know their periodic their periodic tables and they clearly knew how the pharmaceutical chemicals were and they obviously went back and put them back on the, on the shelves in the stores without anyone noticing so you're telling me that this person in the birthday commas stole these bottles of Tylenol laced them with cyanide then went back to the stores put them back on the shelves without no one noticing. So did this person break in to the stores during during closing hours and put them back? Like, how did that happen? In a concerted effort to reassure the public, Johnson & Johnson distributed warnings to hospitals and distributors and halted Tylenol production and advertising on October 5th, 1982. It Excuse me. It issued a nationwide recall of Tylenol products. An estimated 31 million bottles were in circulation, with a retail value of over 100 million dollars, equivalent to 268 million dollars in 2020. The company also advertised in the national media for individuals not to consume any of its products that contained acetaminophen after it was determined that only these capsules had been tampered with. Johnson & Johnson also offered to exchange all Tylenol capsules already published, already purchased, purchased sorry, by the public for solid tablets. So, obviously, you know, as a business, you know, they, and I'm, I'm, fe- I'm certain that Johnson & Johnson are a well-respected business, I don't, I'm not sure. But they're like, right, we've got to make sure that we let everyone know that not to obviously take a said pills. Uh, so they did all this. Um, $100 million. Like, that is a lot, but obviously, you know, people's lives were at stake, so... You know, that outweighs. Um, but let's head right into the investigations. So, during the initial investigation, a man named James William Lewis sent a letter to Johnson & Johnson demanding $1 million to stop the cyanide-induced murders. A check revealed that Lewis had a troubled background. Lewis was placed into care as an infant, and was adopted at the age of three. As a child, Lewis at times would burst into fits of rage in one incident. Lewis had chased his adopted mother with an axe, and in in another incident was charged with the assault for breaking his adopted father's ribs 
diagnosed with schizophrenia, Lewis was placed in a psychiatric hospital after he attempted suicide by overdosing on over-the-counter pain medication. Lewis later claimed the suicide attempt and incidents of violence was part of a plan created by his family to avoid being drafted into the army for service in Vietnam. Lewis excelled at school and attended the University of Missouri, where he met his future wife, Leanne. After university, Lewis and Leanne married and settled down in Kansas City, working as bookkeepers. <coughs> for a tax accounting firm. After an argument with the firm's owner, Lewis and Leanne left the firm and started their own firm. They met a 72-year-old retired truck driver, Raymond West, who became their first client. West was reported missing by a friend on July 24th, 1978. A note with a business letterhead from Lewis's firm was found stuck in a door saying that West was out of town and to see Lewis for details. When the officers gained entry into West's home, another note with Lewis's letterhead was found on West's coffee table, telling the West, telling that West was sleeping and not to wake him until after 1pm. Police conducted a second search of West's home three weeks later on the 14th of August and found West's dismembered body wrapped in sheets and garbage bags in the attic. Investigators were unable to determine West's cause of death due to the decomposition of West's body. Lewis was arrested after it was discovered that $5,000 was withdrawn from West's bank account and placed into Lewis's bank account. A search of Lewis's home turned up rope, garbage, bags and checkbooks belonging to West. Lewis was again arrested and charged with West's murder in October 1979. Days before his trial, the case, based only on circumstantial evidence, was dismissed. Lewis was identified by fingerprints and the envelope used. However, police were unable to link him with the crimes, as he and Leanne were living in New York City. He was instead convicted of extortion and later served 13 years of a possible 20-year sentence and was paroled in 1995. WCVB Channel 5 of Boston reported that court documents released in early 2009 showed Department of Justice investigators concluded Lewis was responsible for the poisonings despite the fact that they did not have enough evidence to charge him. In January 2010, both Lewis and his wife submitted DNA samples and fingerprints to authorities. Lewis stated, if the FBI places it there, I have nothing to worry about. Lewis continued to deny all responsibility for the poisonings. As the the letterhead, Excuse me, on the extortion letter was traced to a former travel agency where Lewis's wife worked. It was believed the extortion was used as a revenge attempt 
against his wife's former boss over money owed to Lewis's wife after the travel agency had gone out of business and closed down. Lewis's handwriting also matched that of a second extortion letter sent to President Ronald Reagan, warning that the Tylenol poisonings would continue if a federal taxation overhaul wasn't conducted, and threatening to crash remote controlled airplanes into the White House. A second man, Roger Arnold, was identified. Investigated and cleared of the killings, he had a nervous breakdown due to the immediate attention, which he blamed on Marty Sinclair, a bot owner in the summer of 1983. Arnold shot and killed John Stanisher, an unrelated man whom he mistook for Sinclair and who did not know Arnold. Arnold was convicted in January 1985 and served 15 years of a possible 30-year sentence for second-degree murder. He died in June 2008. Louis Dan, who poisoned and shot a number of people in a May 1988 rampage in and around Winnetka, Illinois, was briefly considered as a suspect, but no direction but no direct connection was found. Ongoing investigations. In early 1983, at the FBI's request, Chicago Tribune columnist Bob Green published the address and grave location of the first and youngest victim, Mary Kellerman. The story, written with the Kellerman family's consent, was proposed by FBI criminal analyst John Douglas. On the theory that the perpetrator might visit the house or gravesite if he were made aware of their location. Both sites were kept under 24-hour video surveillance for months, but the killer did not surface. A surveillance photo of Paula Prince purchasing cyanide-tampered Tylenol at a Walgreens at 1601 North Wells Street was released by the Chicago Police Department. Police believe that a bearded man seen just feet behind Prince may be the killer. In early January 2009, Illinois authorities renewed the investigation. Federal agents searched the home of Lewis in Cambridge, Massachusetts and seized a number of items. In Chicago, an FBI spokesman declined to comment but said we will have something to release later possibly. Law enforcement officials have received a number of tips related to the case coinciding with its anniversary. In a written statement, the FBI explained, This review was prompted, in part by the recent 25th anniversary of this crime, and the resulting publicity. Further, given the many recent advances in forensic technology, it was only natural that a second look be taken at the case and recovered evidence. On May 19, 2011, the FBI requested DNA samples from Duna Bomber, Ted, Kaczyn- Ted Kaczynski, in connection to the Tylenol murders. Kaczynski denied having ever possessed potassium cyanide. The first four Duna Bomber crimes happened in Chicago and its suburbs from 1978 to 1980 and Kaczynski's parents had a suburban, suburban Chicago home in Lombard, Illinois. In 1982, 
where he stayed occasionally. So at this point, they are probably looking at Ted Kaczynski as their main suspect. You know, that's the thing. You've got a fellow... I'm not a police officer, you know, so I don't know, but I do know that the police have to follow every avenue. You know, even even if they are not the actual suspect, they have they still have to follow protocol and make sure. Hundreds of copycat attacks involving Tylenol, other over-the-counter medications and other products also took place around the United States immediately following the, the Chicago deaths. The three more deaths occurred in 1986 from tampered gelatin capsules. A woman died in Yonkers, New York after ingesting extra-strength Tylenol capsules laced with cyanide. Exedrine capsules in Washington State were tampered with, resulting in the deaths of Susan Snow and Bruce Nichol from cyanide poisoning and the eventual arrest and conviction of Nikhil's wife, Stella, for her intentional actions in the crimes, connected to both murders. That same year, Procter & Gamble's Encaprin was recalled after a spiking hope in Chicago and Detroit that resulted in a precipitous sales drop and withdrawal of the pain reliever from the market. In 1986, a University of Texas student, Kenneth Harris, was found dead in his apartment after, after succumbing to cyanide poisoning. Tampered anacin capsules were determined to be the source of the cyanide found in his body. His death was ruled as a homicide. On May 30th, 1986, on June 19th, 1986, on June 19, 1986, the AP reported that the Travis County Medical Examiner ruled his death a likely suicide. The FDA determined he obtained the poison from a lab in which he worked. <coughs> so, they go from his death was ruled as a homicide, but then the Travis, Travis County Medical Examiner ruled his death a likely suicide. Now, obviously, we're not going to know for sure, but it doesn't sound like a suicide to me, but I don't know. Um, Johnson & Johnson response. Johnson & Johnson received positive coverage for its handling of the crisis. For example, an article in the Washington Post said Johnson & Johnson has effectively demonstrated how a major business or to handle a disaster. The article further stated that this is no three-mile island accident in which the company's response did more damage than the original incident and applauded the company for being honest with the public. In addition to issuing the recall, the company established relations with the Chicago Police Department, the FBI and the Food and Drug Administration. This way, it could have have a could have a part in searching for the person who leased the capsules, and they could help prevent further tampering. While at the time of the scare, the company's market share collapsed from 35% to 80%. It rebounded in less than a year, a move credited to the company's prompt and aggressive reaction. 
In November, it reintroduced capsules, but in a new triple sealed package, coupled with heavy price promotions, and within several years, Tylenol had regained the highest market share for the over-the-counter analgesic in the US. Which, you know, I mean, good for them for, you know, sticking with the tap with the Tylenol, Tylenol aspect, you know. Anyway, uh, let's go on to the pharmaceutical changes. So, the 1982 incident inspired the pharmaceutical food and consumer product industries to develop tamper-resistant packaging, such as induction seals and improved quality control methods. Moreover, product tampering was made a federal crime. The new laws resulted in Stella Nichols' conviction in the Excedrin tampering case, for which she was sentenced to 90 years in prison. Additionally, the incident prompted the pharmaceutical industry to move away from capsules, which were easy to contaminate as a foreign substance, could be placed inside without obvious signs of tampering. Within a year, the FDI introduced more stringent regulations to avoid product tampering. This led to the eventual replacement of the capsule with solid caplet, a tablet made in the shape of a capsule, as a drug delivery form, and with the addition of tamper-evident safety seals to bottles of many sorts. In popular culture, the murders inspired the plot of the seventh episode, Poison, of the first season of Law and Order, Criminal Intent. However, the murders in this episode tracked more closely to the Stella Nicole case in the Seattle area rather than the Chicago murders. And that was the Chicago Tylenol murders. I will, of course, include the link to the article in the description of the podcast so you can check it out yourself. Um, and, yeah, that will be it. I will obviously pre-record Monday's episode so that that's ready to go out. Um, but yeah, I wish everyone a happy weekend. I hope you all have fun, enjoy yourself. Obviously, still keep safe. Um, look after your mental health as well. You know, do what you want to do. Right, you know, stick to your boundaries. But yeah, that would be it from me. And until next Monday, have a great time. Enjoy yourself. And I will see you next one. I wonder if God got a plan for everyone. I wonder if I could take a second run. Because I carry on getting sad and getting stuck. What I wouldn't give for a life that doesn't suck I'm a moving target